Hello and welcome to the Doc Arena podcast in association with Film Ireland. My name is Ross Whitaker, and in this fortnightly podcast series, I talk to filmmakers about their documentaries, both in terms of the subjects they choose and the way in which they fund, craft and distribute their work. In this episode, I'm delighted to speak to the brilliant documentarian Kim Bartley about her second feature, Pure Grit, a beautiful observational film set on a Native American reservation. The film is produced by Rachel Lysett for Underground Films and will have its world premiere next weekend. That's July 23rd, 2021 at the Galway Film Fla, both in person and online, and will no doubt play at many more international festivals to come. Chronicling three years in the life of a young Native American woman, Pure Grit is a thrilling and intimate tale of extreme bareback horse riding, young love, and the challenges of family life in a marginalized community. We also talk about Kim's first feature doc, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, released over 15 years ago, and the crazy experience of making a film that was massively revered, but also attacked and undermined for political reasons. Here's a clip from Pure Grit. Wow, Charmaine Weed, all the way from Fort Washington, Wyoming. Not everybody is made to bareback risk. Ah! Ah! It takes a lot of heart, a lot of guts. When you're on top, there's always somebody down here coming for you. I'm unbeatable. Everybody gets me. We actually met on Facebook. <laughs> Thank God, she looks just like her pictures. <laughs> we went through a lot of abuse. And if it continued, who knows if any of us would even be alive. Do you plead guilty or not guilty? Guilty. I've been away from home and I've came back and raced before. Did any girls come up to you? Huh? No. We love each other, we do, but we just can't stand each other. My horse racing is the love of my life. That's all I'm gonna keep thinking about. You have to stick through with the fire and the rain, you know? I guess it runs through our blood. That's the way it is. I was born to do this. Ready now? Yeah. No. <laughs> Kim, thanks a million for joining me. And I suppose to start off with, in your own words, could you kind of explain what the film is, what the film is about? Well, it's it's an obser- it's a very kind of old school observation documentary, uh, and it, it centres around um, a Native American young woman who is a bareback horse racing champion, uh, or at least was when I came into her life. She had stopped racing. Uh, but she, she, she was just a fascinating character. She'd stopped racing, which was the reason I'd got in touch with her was the racing, but she also was in this new relationship. And the minute I met her and her girlfriend, their kind of love story became part of the story that I wanted to tell. So that's what it's about. Really. She decided she wanted to start racing again. And I followed her through that. And then, like I said, it also became about the relationship and various other things that went on. But that's kind of the story. Yeah, and there's a huge amount of kind of story textures there and also visual textures. But how did you end up a woman from Ireland in this environment? What led you there into this quite incredible place, I suppose? Well, it was pure chance. And our docs so often are, aren't they? And um, I was actually filming in the States on another project. I came across, I was on a reservation, a different one. I came across the bareback racing and I'd never I'd never seen it at that level and it was just oh I mean it was a dream to shoot because it was just extraordinary looking and colorful and exciting and scary and all of that and I just thought that was fascinating and then I happened to talk to a girl who was racing she was the only woman there that day um, and I was just interested and she kind of said you know it's growing there's always one race that women take part in but the rest of it is all men um, and I left and came home and it was stuck in my head. And I just started looking up online. And really, the only connection I could make to any of the women who raced w- was through Facebook. So I kind of friended one and she, you know, through her, I came across others. And and I'm not a Facebook person. I really don't use it at all. Um, but along the way, up popped Charmaine, who's the, 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 the star of this documentary, I suppose. And I suppose she has a very striking look. 
she was very interesting looking to begin with. And then I just started chatting to her on Facebook and she was just very open, very, uh, she, she's a gay woman as well, living with her girlfriend, which I probably mistakenly at the time thought was kind of unusual. As it turned out, it, it wasn't that big a deal really um, where she, where she lives, but, but that was it. So, so it was, we had this kind of Facebook friendship. Um, I had one or two chats with her on the phone I had no idea of her background, the kind of her past, which reveals itself in the documentary. And the next shoot I went on to the States, uh, very luckily, a flight fell through and I ended up stranded somewhere for four days. And I thought, OK, I'm going to hop on a plane to Wyoming, gave her a, a bell and just said, like, I'll be there tomorrow if that's OK. And landed at her place and shot for four days, which I never intended to. I had the camera because I was off on another shoot. Um and I pretty much every frame that I shot over those four days is in the dock. She was just so incredibly open straight away. The family became, were so welcoming. We just got on. And that was it, really. So it really was weird. Now, then it was so, it's so remote and so far away that when I came home and went, OK, this is a dock, I want, you know, then the whole the rest of it was another headache. You know, how you even get back there was so expensive to get there it was so far. And and as you know yourself, really hard to finance a documentary that's observational in nature because everyone wants to know what's going to happen next and where does it end and how long do you need and I had no idea because I'd literally spent four days but instinctively I just knew that there was something in her you know from those four days so and in a way by doing those four days I suppose you had done a part of the development part of the project you know you could probably make a trailer out of that and so on so that was fortuitous it was exactly and that's what I did I did I cut a trailer out of those four days and 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 within those four days in fact on the second day kind of out of nowhere Charmaine started telling me about her her past and uh and uh, you know she's a survivor of 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 sexual abuse as, as a young woman she went to court on her own I mean she was kind of rejected by her family when she spoke out about this she went to court as a 14 year old and stood up and gave evidence against this person um so she was just incredible and this is all in the space of four days so suddenly I kind of had gone to meet her to make this female racing doc in a way that's what it was in my mind and then it turned into everything else and I suppose that then I started becoming more aware I would have read about you know violence against women particularly indigenous women it's, there's a high incidence of sexual violence and violence against women um in native american and alaskan communities and canadian first nation that kind of thing but i started learning a bit more about that through her and then i thought okay well actually there's more than just a racing story here there's all these other layers um so yeah it was no it, it start. it was very you know it was a very fortuitous trip yeah and isn't it funny that despite the fact that with these observational films, it has always been the case and pretty much will always be the case that you can't tell people what's going to happen. And yet so many of them turn out to be among the best films you'll ever see that they're still hard to get funded. It's, it's I know, a strange. I, know. I, I was listening to a podcast just the other day with Steve James uh, about about more recent projects, but he, he just mentioned Hoop Dreams, which would have been a defining doc for me years ago and uh, and I think he said that he got a grant of two thousand dollars and for the first couple of years that was all he had <laughs> and you just kind of go you know that is one of the defining ob docs of its time I'm sure you and anyone our generation was influenced by it um and I mean not much has changed really <laughs> this is it and I, I think there's a real push for in recent times, like I think documentaries having a real moment, but I think within that there's been a real push to make documentaries fit into this kind of narrative dramatic structure that isn't always right for a documentary, um, and it's something I'm struggling with. More. Like I just you know I, I like production values have gone through the roof and all that is great, but it leaves things like observation documentaries behind because it doesn't have a three act structure necessarily. It doesn't have you can't tell them what's going to happen. You can't necessarily have very high production values because because that's not the nature of the doc. So, yeah, no, they're they're difficult ones to to fund. Yeah, it does feel like documentary is having a golden moment, but at the same time, the docs almost have to be golden 
tickets yeah. in a way, you know, God, that's a terrible way of, of saying it. But, you know, if, if it's about an incredibly famous person, then yes, everybody wants to make it. But it, it, traditionally, I think probably a lot of people came into documentaries wanting to tell the stories of ordinary people. Mm -hmm. And it feels like they're almost harder to um, to tell than than ever. But you, you mentioned Hoop Dreams be one of the one of the defining documentaries for you. What were the other ones that led you to get into documentary making? Because I suppose around the time of your earlier films was probably when that was starting to kick off. And, and there weren't that many films that had broken through um, into the kind of general consciousness at that point to have inspired you. But what were they? You know, it's really funny. I, I, it's something I need to I'd need to have a think about because Who Dreams is the one that sticks out um, and other subsequent Steve James docs as well. But, I, you know, uh, uh, um, there's a, I grew up in France and there's a, a French documentary maker called De Pardon who always did very much kind of the low-key obdoc stuff that I love uh, or things like he was the first to put a camera in the courts so he would just have a locked-up camera in the back of the courts. Uh, I've tried to show them to people here. They don't seem to exist with subtitles. I don't know. But he would have been a, a a huge influence. Now he was, you know, he he was a lot older than me, and 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 his heyday would probably have been the eighties, and he's done a few since. But um, but other than that, it, I, I'm not even sure that I used to watch that many docs. I suppose when I started out, it was very much um, it was more in kind of a type of journalism, if you like. Like when I was doing the stuff I used to do in, you know, emergency response or covering aid work and hur hurricanes or that kind of thing so it was less about documentary film and more about documenting I suppose but um but then you know like I and I still gravitate to the to, towards that kind of observation like there's so many am amazing high-end docs now that are, that aren't observations if you take I want to say high-end I mean high production values and very you know structured so if you think of the act of killing or if you think of um casting john benet or those kind of docs they're fascinating still i'm drawn though to um I'm, like minding the gap i loved last year the year whenever that was a couple of years ago um i don't know if you saw in the dublin film festival recently the romanian akasa yes i did I yeah, really it was amazing. thought that was incredible but there, there aren't that many of those types of docs around, really. They tend to be more the Icaruses or the, you know, the, like you said, or something structured around someone well-known or celebrity or whatever it is. Very kind of conceptual films that mm. you can, either the, they're sold by the form or you can immediately put a character at the centre of it that, that just seems obvious. You know, it's it's true. Um, but you're right. I mean, that Romanian film was amazing. Also, Collective, which is also completely observational Romanian film. Like, that's another one from the last 18 months that... When it's done well, it just it's the best form of documentary filmmaking. But going back to the journalistic side, I mean, like I would have first seen your work, you know, with the revolution will not be televised. I was actually in Toronto at Hot Docs and I was watching the films that hadn't been selected. There was a, I was uh, writing for a magazine and you could watch some of the films that hadn't been selected. And I said, I will watch the Irish films. And I saw your film. And I remember emailing David Power, who was uh, one of the producers at the time, and just being like, this film has blown me away. It's the best thing I've seen this week. And it wasn't shown. Now, I know what I watched was actually a rough cut at the time. So maybe it was just a timing thing. But what led you to that film? Was it that kind of more journalistic type of thing that you were doing? Who 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 are you doing those things for? You know, what was that path? Well, that was at the time I was working uh, doing the the emergency thing with concern. So basically, any time concern uh, went out to cover an emergency, I went with them and filmed or photographed their work. And I there had been these awful mudslides in Venezuela in two thousand and one, or was it late two thousand? Anyway, it's a long time ago now. And I I was out there with them, and I I was aware of Chavez. I'd read about him, and I thought he sounded interesting, but. It, you know, I didn't know anything about him. And I, I, I would have spent a lot of time. In, I'd lived in Colombia. I'd lived in South America, but I'd never been to Venezuela. So I ended up there and just thought there was something really interesting going on on the ground. Um, he had just got in and I was very much in the hills out in the barrios, you know, 
where which was always you know his his stronghold so i became um, i came, became really interested in him and i just thought and i th- oh you know it's funny i haven't talked about this in so long but i i met some military guy on the side of a hill who was you know working with the military to to dig people out or whatever was going on at the time and he said it was pure magic realism you know he was like oh my cousin my cousin's uncle works for Chavez or whatever you know I could get you a contact there and I was kind of like yeah great and I followed that up and followed it actually led to some to some kind of a contact about a year later but it was it was it was a bit pie in the sky but anyway so I, I went home thinking this person is fascinating the reaction to him on the ground is fascinating I have this little in that I thought I had um and Dunnick O'Brien who ended up uh, uh directing it with was very interested probably more from a political point of view like I I hadn't been that familiar with Chavez's politics Dunnick was and was very interested and that was it then we just thought okay well this this is a doc we have to do because we have this in <laughs> that actually we didn't really have at all, thought we had. So that's where that came from. And I mean, look, thanks for saying how much you liked it. And it's still, you know, it was one of those, it was just once in a lifetime thing. You know, it was just an extraordinary story, an extraordinary time to be there. We we killed ourselves getting getting there and getting in. So I can't say it was luck, but there was an element of luck, obviously, that we were there on the day when the, when the coup happened and everything else. So it, it was, I mean, it was a life-defining documentary for me. Um, and also one as a documentary maker, because it was my first feature, that I think you look back now and you think the aftermath I would have dealt with so differently. You know, like you, you kind of need to have another idea in, in your back pocket when you're out there doing the circuit, because you get so consumed with promoting the film and... You have this tiny little window of opportunity, and instead, I look back now and I had all these made, met these incredible people, and you know, probably could have got the finance together to make another doc, but I was just like blown away and completely destroyed physically and mentally from making the documentary, and um, and that's it. So this is like this pure grit is my is the next feature doc. I kind of couldn't even face into that. It was an incredible film. I mean, it's just, and it's funny, you know, I saw there was like a small, I hate mentioning social media, <laughs> but there was there was a small discussion about it on, on Twitter or something the other day. And, and Tim Wardle, who made uh, Three Identical Strangers, yeah. mentioned it as one of the defining documentaries of, of his development, I suppose. And like, he's such, he's a really, a documentary maker, I think is really brilliant and it's only going to do lots more amazing things. And it's incredible to think of the scope of it, you know, and how many people must have seen it along the way. And it is that thing for every first time filmmaker, you know, who has any type of success, let alone, I think, you know, that film was at one stage won an award for being the best uh, documentary in the world that year at Banff, (laughs) which I remember it all really well, funnily (laughs) enough, because I was following the story so closely. But you know, it's almost impossible at that stage of your career when you put everything into your first film to have a second film. I mean, you don't think that way. You just think, I would just want to make a film and get it finished. And wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Wouldn't it be wonderful to show in one festival, let alone, you know, for it to go on a circuit and so on. So it, it's a lot to ask of of a first time filmmaker. And But I mean, can you talk a little bit more about that time, I suppose, and having that I suppose you may not have realized at the moment at that moment that you kind of had lightning in a bottle but you still had to as you say you know there's an element of luck. well there really isn't yeah like luck is showing up I think sometimes you know especially for observational filmmaking nothing will happen if you if you're not there to 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 film it in terms of uh making a film but you still had to edit it you still had to you know somebody had to take it to the world that must have been a really interesting process to go through the first time. It was. I mean, it, it, yeah, it really was. Like the, the making of, I think we were in Venezuela for nine months. So like it was a massive undertaking. Like, you know, people were screaming at us to come home. And we all we had at that point was this portrait. And, and the access that we knew was very, that was quite incredible. But nothing was 
happening such dr- dramatically. And yet we knew you could just you just knew there was something in the air. You knew something was going to happen. Now, obviously, I had no idea that it would be a coup, but I just knew we did, both myself and Danica felt that we we need to stay on longer. This isn't over. So there was that push pull constantly. Like there's no more money. Get on a plane home. I sold my car over the phone. You know, we just did everything we could to stay on. Uh, and then and then obviously that that happened. So um, yeah. And then I suppose what the experience was overwhelming in itself because um, I suppose the immediate aftermath of the coup was kind of scary. There was all this stuff, of, you know, you better hide and hide the footage and all that thing. You know, that was that was something that I, we never uh, had planned on dealing with, obviously. Um, and then when we went into the edit, uh, well, I mean, look, with a documentary, aren't you? You're kind of reinventing your story every day, every time you take the camera out, and then you go to the edit and you're reinventing it again. So it went from the, being this portrait, and so much of the footage we shot was with a view to that. So just talking to people in the street or what have you. Then suddenly, the coup was, you know, we captured this on on camera. And that meant a whole restructure because then you kind of needed a more of a sense of the the, the 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 hinterland and the past and what led to that and so and 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 we hadn't been shooting it that way we'd we'd been shooting it very much as an obdoc you know following Chavez's nurse around for a day to see what she would do you know so it was so it was a very tricky edit we had an amazing editor Angel Zoido who was Spanish who because we knew we needed a Spanish I speak Spanish and Dunica spoke reasonably good Spanish at that point but for the edit you needed someone who, who spoke Spanish um but I suppose the edit was really difficult not so much I mean structurally that was it was difficult but then this whole other thing was going on where Venezuela was so polarized at the time that there was an absolute movement of against the film from certain quarters um, and very political, you know, money being thrown at trying to discredit it and that kind of thing. And that was very difficult. And I mean, you know, we were first time filmmakers Um, they were luckily, I don't even think was social media around at the time. Very little anyway. But so it would have been more in newspapers and what have you. But, there, you know, the, 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 some of the stuff that was thrown at us was quite traumatic and hard to deal with. And yeah, I mean, Dunica left kind of gone, I never wanted to work in this business again I uh still I think I suffered PTSD for years after um because you know there was such an attack on us but um yeah but it was an incredible experience but that's it it was it was such a whirlwind a lot of the time I can't even remember because I I I didn't talk about it for years it was just too much to to handle really to go back over you know and with age, it's funny, you go back and you kind of think, hmm. like a lot of the times people would have said, would you go back? Would you revisit it? You know, when Chavez was ailing or after he died and that kind of thing. And it was always like, no, like, no, I could not go back there. I'm not saying I would now, but I don't have that kind of visceral kind of, you know, no, I need to do something else. That, that's past now, thankfully. Yeah. I think when you throw yourself so wholly into something, uh, it, it, it there's a recovery time it's almost like a relationship like they say for every year you're in a relationship with someone it takes six months to recover or something like that so like i think if if you've thrown yourself so wholly into an obdoc scenario and then add everything else that, that came with that film and, and I've sort of forgotten about all that aftermath of the negativity that was thrown towards it you know i was such a, a fan of it that i i just saw that as kind of you know noise uh, trying to to derail something that was so clearly good but so let's kind of draw a line under that because <laughs> i didn't mean to talk about that actually very okay. much but i'm not traumatized gone... today it's okay <laughs> no 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 i know i know but just we should really be talking about uh pure grit and it's kind of interesting with the gap between them like to think of how much you've evolved as as a documentary maker more so in a television form i suppose but using all the same skills um, to come to this film knowing I suppose that this was your second feature a number of years on what was your mentality going into it in terms of how you wanted to make it and you know it is a little bit different to making a television documentary in that in a way a feature film 
for want of a better word, you're making a statement. You know, you're a pro you have an approach. You knew that you were making this feature. It was in a very specific kind of environment. What was your thought process going into it in terms of what you wanted to create? I'm not sure that I approach TV docs or, or that I approach this feature doc in any in a different way, in a way, because I suppose with every doc that I make, I'm I'm I, I want people to feel like they've had a little window into a world that they wouldn't otherwise have and and to come away feeling different about it and and maybe thinking about it or questioning it and that's exactly what I wanted with this um I think that like I I would have done a good bit of work with uh travelers here or in traveling communities um and I suppose there are huge parallels and it was very much, like I said, I didn't really know a whole lot about Native American communities, but the minute I got there, it was like, wow, this, you know, I know this in so many ways. Um, and the levels of racism in the States towards Native Americans. Um, and and that's kind of not talked as much about it as, as it would be with, you know, African-Americans, for example, or Asian communities. And, um, and I just... Yeah, and there, so I suppose for me, it was uh, I, all I want from this is to give people a window into this little world that, or not little world, but this world that's it's, um, it's not even within the states. Most people don't really have that much of a, of 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 an idea of what goes on in a reservation, and I suppose. Native Americans, it's a bit like the, the prejudices people have against travelers here. Native Americans, largely due to Hollywood. You know, people, it's either, you know, they're redskins on horses or whatever notions people have. Or maybe if you live alongside them in a city, for a lot of people, it's like the, the, the same attitude as, as they have to travelers here. So it's like, you know, they're, they're uneducated, they're this, they're that. And then you step into the world and, yeah, there are a lot of social problems. There's a lot of, you know, historical trauma. Um but then there's also this incredible, well, obviously the, the the one Wind River, the reservation I was on is just extraordinary looking. It's a stunning part of the world. It's so remote. It's very, very harsh to live there because the winters are really long and very, very tough. Summers are very, very hot. But my God, it's just beautiful, you know. And then a lot of people that I met live in harmony with nature and really try to hang on to those ways and those that culture they have that's been passed down. So it's, you know, Every second more, nine out of ten kids you meet on the res will be, you know, in hip hop gear and they're listening to rap. But then they'll also go and do a sweat at the weekend or they will, you know, hope to be the pipe holder when they're 18 or, you know, so it's a really, really interesting world that way and a mix of cultures that's really, really fascinating. So I suppose that that was it. I mean, I didn't really have any kind of a plan because it all happened so um randomly but then once I, I i got in there and plus we i think we were very lucky because i think there is a sense on the reservation very much of wariness towards outsiders coming in um and i remember that first four days i was there charmaine's brother who's in the first few minutes of the film the guy who, who trains um who trains her was kind of saying like, you know, a few people have approached us at races before and, and, and wanted to film something, but we were like, no, there's no, you know, no. And we just hit it off. So we were very lucky that way. Um, but, and then there's this whole discourse at the moment around, you know, representation and should a white woman from Ireland be telling the story of a Native American woman from Wyoming now, I have massive issues around all that. I think representation is really important. I think it's really important that diverse voices are out there and, and given the tools to tell their stories. But I suppose the fact is at the moment, not everyone has the tools to tell their stories. And I hope it becomes that way. But I mean, even here, you know, filmmaking is a privilege and hard enough if you even have, if you're from a middle class background and have the, the education and whatever it is else to survive on 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 a job that doesn't actually you know make a whole lot of money but if you're outside of that it's very very difficult so i think that once um if someone actually wants you to tell their story which was very much the case in charmaine's in charmaine's case then 
then it's then it's a privilege to tell it. And I don't think you need to worry too much about gender or color or race. That's my feeling anyway. Once once there's a respect there, who cares what color you are really? Yeah, that that is a whole other conversation mm. for sure. Yeah, and and even in the last few sentences there, there's probably several things we could talk about for quite a long time, but maybe not today. Um, coming back to pure grit though, and I I just think that if you're telling this story primarily for, I'm going back to the television versus film thing, and if you're telling the story primarily for a television audience, I feel like you might ask or you might choose to um in the edit to bring parts of the story to the fore or parts of interviews to the fore that might more hit issues on the head if you know what I mean you might say okay you know racism isn't like the, because often I suppose with television talks you say like these are the issues that we need to address whereas in this case you're you're unfolding some of those issues very subtly within an observational framework so to my mind it does your approach to this does probably differ a little bit, whether or not you realize it at the time, you know what I mean? Or, or whether or not that's something that comes through in the edit and trying to piece it together in a more, on a more filmic narrative yeah. way. Do you think yeah. that's fair to say? Probably. I hadn't thought about that at all. I mean, I suppose it would be like, I mean, you could make 10 different docs with the same footage in the edit, obviously. And I think one of the things, I mean, one of the frustrations I have with TV is is this constant need for voiceover, which I've no issue with voiceover. In some situations, it, it, I, it's needed and I love it. But I, um, but I think there is a, there is a, I suppose from it, I don't know. Maybe the biggest difference in my mind between delivering something for TV or, you know, like you said, a feature doc, is that I think television um, underestimates their audience an awful lot of the time and there's this sense always that you have to dumb things down or explain stuff um whereas when you're doing a feature you it's it's acceptable to make the audience work hard and you know have to hang on to everything every every detail to, to so that it all unfolds and makes sense in the end but i think that's a that's i, I think that's a failure of tv i i think people are very capable of watching things and enjoying them without being spoon fed and you know, reminded at the top of the part after the ad what happened two and a half minutes ago, you know. So that I suppose you obviously in the attitude approach differently, but I don't think in terms of filming or what I'm trying to say, I, I'd never thought of it as I never thought of them as two distinct things, I have to say. There's a number of things about this film that I loved. I mean, obviously Charmaine at the centre of it is just this unbelievable character and, and you could watch her for hours if she said nothing. <laughs> like she just has she's just so alluring and you just feel that there's so much within her um, just by looking at her, you know, she has incredible presence, I think, which I'm sure you're happy to hear because <laughs> it's always, I know as a filmmaker, often you, you feel that way about your characters and, and you often wonder, will other people feel the same way as well? But she, she certainly does. But the, the thing that struck me the most and kind of blew me away actually was just the quality of your filming. Oh. <laughs> I, I just think it is one of the most beautifully shot um, by a director things I've ever seen and wow. I wondered I suppose about that path as a director that also films and I sometimes say it and it feels kind of slightly embarrassing to say it, but like when you're a shooting director yeah and you have the camera in your hand there's no moment where you have to communicate to somebody else what it is you want you're, you are in the moment mm. and you're responding to what's in front of you and for want of a better phrase or one that sounds less awful, it's the camera at that point is the paintbrush in your hand, you know. And I would love to hear how you have, and I'm sure it's just happened gradually, but how you've developed that process over the years and, and how you kind of think about what you're filming as you're doing it. Well, look, it's exactly as you said it. I mean, I ended up doing it out of frustration at, not being able to necessarily communicate properly what I wanted and I worked with amazing camera people over the years but for that kind of intimate filming you 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 know the way you just notice something tiny and you, you might be in mid-conversation as you notice it and if you were had to mid-conversation turn to a cameraman and go get a shot of the fly on her knee it, it just it ruins it you know what I mean so and then, I mean I have worked with camera people who 
who who pick up on those things but it's a very you know it's a very it's a very subtle thing and I just started thinking I might as well just try and do it myself um and like I had done a lot of filming like I said when I was on the road with concern and all of that um fully automatic a lot of the time (laughs) and I look back now and go my god um and I've no formal training so I mean I do it because I love it but I actually couldn't even tell you what I'm doing I'm not even sure I could you know I have lenses and I know what they do but I couldn't even tell you what lenses they are like I'm completely untechnical it's it's purely instinctive and I would never I mean I'm completely blown away by what you've said there because I wouldn't think of myself as as oh as anything when it comes to camera you know if someone else said shoot my doc for me there's no way I'd do it because I wouldn't feel technically up to it but it works for the kind of work I do and um and obviously I have improved as you know the more you shoot the better you get at it and the other thing is like really somewhere like Wyoming with the light that exists there it's like shooting in somewhere like Arizona it it shoots itself you know it's so easy to get beautiful images because the light you know whereas in Ireland on a flat day it's so hard to get something that looks really beautiful when the light is gray and flat it's 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 a much easier thing to do when when you have stunning light um and then and I like uh, this is kind of going off but it's 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 also part of it is that um I work with my partner who's who does the sound um and that's a little bit that kind of thing I was saying that you try to get with a camera person is is it's a kind of an unspoken instinctive sense of what's important or what's not. And that's really useful for me because I used to do everything. I used to sound as well. And it's too much. It's just too much. And I would never do it again, given the chance, because there's just too much going on and, and, and you can't focus on what you're trying to film. Whereas when you've someone there who has become part of the scenery as you have and has developed the same kind of friendships or relationships that you have with the people, then, you know, I can want, I can ha- keep a conversation going with someone and turn my camera to the left to pick up something that I want because I'm just aware of it in my peripheral vision. And Colm can keep the mic on that person because he knows what they're saying is really important and he won't suddenly throw the boom across because I've moved the camera do you know so those things are really I mean doing it on your own or, or doing it with a sidekick who's on the same wavelength is just massive so so important for this kind of documentary making you know like I wouldn't presume ever to shoot sit down beautifully lit interviews I wouldn't be able to but this kind of verite style I, I, I love doing it on my own yeah and it's I sometimes think it's something that directors can be discouraged from doing because it's almost a sense of like oh we need to get you a DOP to make this thing as nice as it can be but you'll never capture the same moments mm-hmm. that you will on your own yeah. um, in that scenario with a bigger crew when you're on the shoots then are you thinking of the scene as you're doing it are you thinking of the edit or are you thinking of a certain type of shot variety are you thinking about a kind of a thematic kind of thing I mean I know some of these things can be instinctive and they just become part of the signature of what you do. But what are you, how are you approaching it in the moment, I suppose? I'm sure you don't sit down, you probably don't sit down the night before shoots anymore and do shot lists or, and stuff like that. It's more the experience has led you to a place where you go with the flow of it and you have the confidence. But in saying that, then you have to be able to respond to what you see in front of you. Mm. Well, it's really, it's largely instinctive. But then I suppose what I do, what I would always do, <laughs> the one thing I learned from, the Chavez documentary all those years ago was not to overshoot. I'm very, very controlled when I shoot because, you know, I think that confidence builds when you're starting out, you're just terrified you'll miss something and you're, you shoot everything. And I, I never do that anymore. But I suppose what I do is I go, I just go instinctively with whatever's happening. And then I would always that night or whenever I have a minute to myself, make a little note of what I shot and what ideas it sparked or what kind of what else I need to follow up on that. Um, and then, I mean, look, the thing was with this documentary, it was so far away that I think we I think we were there six times. 
And like the first time was four days. Another time was for a week. I think the longest we ever were there for was two and a half weeks. So that's quite unusual because if I was shooting something here, you have the, you know, you can, you can just pop out and do a couple of hours here and there. Um, but I am definitely, like, I'm always editing in my head, always. As I shoot, I, I'm, so when you say sh shot selection, I, 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 I quite love close-ups, close um, so I would shoot close-up quite a lot. But I'm, um, I'm also, yeah, I'm just constantly editing. So if I am with someone in the moment and then they hop in a car and they're gone, I know that scene won't hold together necessarily unless I have a couple of other shots and I'll just get them there and then. I never leave stuff for later, especially here because the the, 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 the scenery is so completely different from one trip to the next that you'd never be able to do a pickup because it would just, you know, be totally different. But yeah, I suppose. Look, I'm very instinctive in everything I do, so I don't actually, I don't really think things through a whole lot in a very structured way, I think, until I... Uh, but the, having said that, sorry, I'm contradicting myself now. Having said that, I'm always editing in my head. So I suppose I just kind of shoot what I know I'll need, and then the rest happens in the in the prep for the edit, really. And look, the other thing is, because I don't want to forget to say this, because it's so so fundamental, is that your editor is your co-author. You know, so Paul Mullen, who edited this, brought so much to it himself um that i think for any documentary you make it's really it's you know it's it, it the director gets all the limelight and really they shouldn't it's such a key relationship within documentary making isn't it with the editor and and which can, can make it hard you know because it's it, it's it's where all the stakes are of the story, I suppose, is when you're in that edit and you're really trying to make the most of your material and you want to get the best out of that person because they can bring their own magic and their own storytelling and everything to it. And then you're trying to also insert what you know from the shoot back into it because it's completely fresh to them. How do you approach the edit? I mean, different people do it differently. Sometimes people will give all the material to an editor and leave them alone for a period of time. Other people will come in with here's a sense of the story that I want to tell roughly and so on. How do you do it? I spend a lot of time. Well, the first thing I do is I go through every single bit of sync that I have or interviews uh, and I transcribe everything. And I already have an idea in my head, as I, like I said, as I'm shooting, it, it keeps evolving. But certainly by the time I come to the prep, I have a very good idea of the structure that I want or that I have in mind, which obviously will change again in the edit. But um so I, so that's what I do. I don't, because I've shot it all myself, I kind of know everything that's there. You, you forget bits, but but what you don't remember is, is is the dialogue or you don't remember necessarily what people said to you in an in interview. So that's what I go through kind of forensically and transcribe everything and then try and fit that into the structure that I had in mind. And then I would go to Paul. Meanwhile, Paul would be going through all the footage himself. Um, as, as far as is possible but like I said I don't overshoot so usually it's quite manageable and then um, I, like I think it's really important to give an editor space and time but I also I'm not someone who just kind of throws the rushes and walks away I, I couldn't do that I'm kind of ha quite hands-on in lots of ways as well so with Paul we have a, a system where I might do two days on two days off that kind of thing now we we got caught by COVID on this because the last trip was the last flight out of the States before they shut down. And um, and and between the jigs and the reels, we had a few... Uh, we had gone into the edit before that because the final trip was unexpected. It was due to the death of the person who dies in the documentary. I mean, anyway, whatever. I won't say it for anyone who hasn't seen it. But um, So we went back. So we had already had a good bit in the edit together, but then it was remote and I'd never done it. Now, I can do it in my sleep now, but it was a very steep learning curve I think for both of us to try and get this feature doc that we'd done maybe three weeks on and do the rest of it remotely you know but because we've worked together so often I think it you know it, it settled quite quickly um but I think Paul probably uh, I'd say he probably had more input than he would normally have because of that because even though I'm there 
remotely or you know discussing stuff and whatever it, it, I'm still not sitting over his shoulder like I would normally so and that was great because he like I said he, he just has a great sense of pace and would be on the same um wavelength as me musically and I think music was really really important to the stock so it, yeah it worked out really well but as you said it's such a fundamental relationship if it's not right I don't think I don't know how um yeah I couldn't walk into a room and start and make the same doc again with an editor that I'd never met before or that I met but just didn't click with, you know. Yeah, it's it's just so important, isn't it? And it's there's a couple of things there to talk about. One is the music is phenomenal. I think Stephen Shannon was one of the composers like the, it's Stephen Shannon and Kevin Murphy. Yeah. Um, yeah, they did. Oh, I mean, they did an amazing job. I just love it. I, I'm hoping they're hoping they can release it. As a, as a you know well not necessarily the soundtrack because we won't have the rights to the other stuff but yeah beautiful job yeah no it's it's and it's phenomenal and that was something that people asked me a lot at the beginning was you know are you going to integrate Native American music or are you going to use Native American music and I really didn't want to because I thought then it just turns into kind of a National Geographic type doc I just I really didn't want that I wanted it to 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 feel quite cinematic and non-native in the in in terms of the sound and that's why they came in so you know Lancome are in there which I think people would associate with very much Irish music but I think it really fits I, I really think it works well you know? now the music is, is brilliant throughout and and it was one of those things where sometimes if you notice the music too much it's a problem but about halfway through I just said wow this this it just struck me <laughs> this soundtrack is great like it's really well done and and then again I was waiting for the credits to see who had done it and, and I actually would know Stephen so like it, it's it's really well done so that that but with that process again it's something people approach differently and and certainly I, I like the idea of waiting as late as possible for the music whereas I think some editors really love to cut with the music so it's a case of, of like please start getting some stuff in early so that we can start feeling the textures um how did you approach it in this case i i always do the same way uh, and and it's down to budget and everything else like i usually use guide tracks that just give a sense of the pace and tone that i want and then when we get to a fairly good rough cut stage we send it out um and i i'd love i'd love for the sake of the composers to be able to have someone in from the get go uh cuz i think for a composer it must be kind of frustrating to have guide tracks when they'd love to just now they, the, to be honest, they actually went off completely away from the guide tracks that were there in a lot of uh, in mo pretty much the whole thing. They had a very good sense of what they wanted to do, but no, I think that, um, and maybe if you had the luxury of, 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 you know, <laughs> weeks and weeks in the edit and what have you, you could go at the composed music earlier but I, I've never been in that situation so I use guide tracks and then once you're at a reasonable rough cut stage you know I'm trying to think when we did it in this case and I can't remember but maybe first viewing kind of time then we send it over to Stephen and Kevin and then leave them at it you know yeah coming back to what you're saying about not shooting too much that's a godsend for an editor in a way. I think people imagine that editors want more and more stuff to work with. But I remember hearing someone tell me a few years ago that they'd shot 500 hours towards a documentary <laughs> and, and, and they were delighted because they're like, we're going to have so much great material. And I just thought this film will never see the light of day because it's going to take you about 20 weeks just to watch that. And, and then you're going to have to start editing and, and who can do that? So how do you figure out, I suppose, or how do you, on the day when you're filming, know what you do and don't want? Because it takes us a lot of confidence to be able to not film. And do you have any thoughts on that? Because I think that's something that could be very helpful to people who are shooting observationally to know that you don't have to shoot six hours a day. It's, it's, it's a difficult one to answer. I mean, I think a lot of it is in how well you get to know your subjects and your characters because you kind of same thing as you would with people in everyday life you have a good sense of how they're going to react to something or what they're going to what's happening in their lives today now obviously you can't you can't tell they suddenly get a phone call or whatever and that's the, that's the killer if you weren't running i think that look the main thing is to actually forgive yourself if you miss something 
because for a long time I would literally lie awake at night beating myself up because I had decided not to you know not to have the, well I don't usually I always have the camera with me but I wasn't rolling let's say um and I mean that and you just can't do that so I just kind of now if I miss something I've missed it and that's it um but in terms of trying to decide it's um again it's 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 kind of instinctive but it but I suppose you probably shoot more at the beginning when you don't know people that well and then the more you get to know them the more you can kind of preempt possibly how they're going to react now the funny thing is too that and I don't like generalizing so I'm not going to say Native Americans but the Native Americans that I have met for the most part tend to be very kind of um, underwhelmed in their reactions to things, including Charmaine. So, you know, in the early days, I might have thought like, oh, you know, I don't know. I, I can't even think of an example, but let's say, you know, I know she's getting some good news today, so I'll roll on that, expecting anyone, including myself, to be kind of going like, whoa, that's fucking brilliant, whatever. And Charmaine would go, yeah, that's good. And you're like, ah, you know, <laughs> that's just not what I was expecting. But once I got used to that, and you're not expecting any kind of overwhelming, uh, uh, you know, very visible reaction. Um, and again, there you get to know someone like so Charmaine, for instance, is someone who thinks stuff through a lot. So when something happens, good or bad, she doesn't react a whole lot. And then she goes off and maybe a day later, maybe a week later, she'll suddenly want to talk about it and she'll have processed it and kind of. I've given it a lot of thought. Um, but again, that's something you learn as you get to know someone, you know. But the thing the thing of overshooting is 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 I think it's just it's, it's experience, isn't it? Because you know yourself, you're never gonna watch the, you're never gonna go through half the rushes if you have five hundred hours, really. Yeah, you're only causing yourself problems and I think sort of twenty beautifully shot, well considered hours are definitely gonna trump 500 and, and some of the best observational filmmakers when when i read about them you learn that they shoot for far less time than you'd expect they they might shoot a doc entire doc over the course of a month where other people are following characters for years and years and years and years for one documentary and of course that can have great value as well but speaking about you know instinctively reacting to the story the story that you ended up with and the one that you started off making i imagine are two different things in this case. Am I right in saying that? And how did you kind of evolve your notion of what you were making? Okay, well, like I said before, I started off thinking it was going to be just about a, a female racer. Then her relationship with her girlfriend really came to the fore because her girlfriend was a lovely counterbalance personality-wise to Charmaine. Charmaine, like I said, can be quite low-key or... Um, She's not outwardly very joyous necessarily as a person. She's quite calm. And her girlfriend, Savannah, is the opposite. She's just a bubbly, giggly. Uh, she's a, a darling. I'm mad about her. She's a lovely, lovely kid. But they're very, very different. And I kind of had a sense at the beginning that that was the story that I was telling. I was telling the story of their relationship. That's kind of what, what it became uh, at one point. Um, then their relationship evolved and um, and and Charmaine started getting back into the racing because the racing thing was all planned and then kept falling through. So like for the first few months she was going to race and then it just didn't happen. And you're kind of like, ah, where's my story? And then she started racing. So really it was constantly, and in the edit it was the same thing. It was kind of, is this the story of the racing or is it the story of relationship or is it both? And I think in a way it's both. Um but I suppose character wise it, it very much is Charmaine's story because at one point I thought it might be both their stories but it, it really it really is Charmaine's story and then it, it also that whole like I said that whole hinterland and that whole um you know Charmaine's sister's story is very important um everything that happened within the family I never intended to really tell her family story because they were quite they weren't reticent is the wrong word but they were they're very private so while they were always happy to be on camera kind of in the background, they weren't dying to, you know, tell me their stories themselves. But again, as time went on, people suddenly would kind of go, well, actually, I'd like you to film me, you know. Um, and then a lot happened within the family. So that became another 
another strand. So in a way, what it ended up being, I think, is, you know, the, the love story and the racing are part of it. But what it is, is a kind of a portrait of one woman and 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 the kind of the women around her. So her mom, her sister, her girlfriend, the um, the little niece and her sister-in-law. Her sister-in-law, Mary, who's, yeah, who's a, another. Uh, they were just such lovely people, too. I mean, we were very, very lucky because we we kind of liked them all, you know, which makes things easier. Yeah, because you do get a sense, for to use a fictional term, of, of a cast of people, you know, and, and a cast of women that are around her and their lives and how they're impacted by the lifestyle um, that they're born into. So th- there's quite a lot actually going on there. In, in terms of a group of people, I felt, you know, and, and it was quite nice. I felt the way you could evolve in and out of those, you know, you could leave a little bit of that for a while and, and come back to the relationship and then check in on the family. And it all felt very natural, which um, I really enjoyed. Speaking of all those people, have you shown it to them? Do you show it to them? Is there going to be a moment where, where that happens or, or what's happened on that? Yeah, I've showed it to them and it's always the, it's it's the big, for me, I'm sure it's the same for you, it's the biggest moment, isn't it? It's far more than showing it to an audience or anything like, you know, I know there's never any surprises because it's a collaborative thing all the way along, but at the same time, no matter how many times you tell people what you're doing and what it's about, it's a very different thing than to, to when, when they actually see it. Not, it's not a very different thing, but it's a an emotional and it's a big deal seeing seeing your life up on uh, on the screen so yeah of course I've showed it to them and thankfully everyone was happy because the trickiest thing I think in this kind of documentary that's shot over time and I mean COVID added an extra year to this whole thing which you know what wasn't planned is that people's lives move on and obviously that's kind of part of what you're showing in the documentary but the longer the window the trickier it becomes because we're all a little bit different than we were last year, but we're also quite different to what we were necessarily or, or in some situations three years ago. And in the case of relationships, if relationships break down, you feel about one way about, you said earlier, it takes six months to get over one year relationship. You know, all these things, the longer it takes for film to be made and get out there, the more conscious you are of all these things moving in the background, you know, and especially where lives are a bit chaotic, which, you know, a lot of their lives are quite chaotic. You always fear that something bad could happen before the film is finished or, you know, all of that. So I like, I just, I'm so glad it's finally, finally out there. But I showed, I showed it to them and I always make a point of showing it to someone with them. I like watching it with someone. But obviously in this case, because of restrictions, I wasn't able to. And um, I just had to, send it off on Vimeo and you know be on the phone before and be on the phone straight after and hope that it all made sense and it did so all Charmaine's family have seen it except Amari actually I think hasn't seen it yet and then Savannah has seen it and everyone was happy and as you probably know from experience too usually you know you might be worried about one thing and again, I don't mean in a way that I would never misrepresent anyone or do it or put something on screen that they didn't want. But, you know, there are certain certain moments in films where you kind of go, I hope, you know, I hope they'll be OK about this. Or, And every time it ends up being something like, I hate my hair at 43 minutes. You know, it's always that. It's the tiny, silly little thing that you'd never thought of. Or, so Charmaine, for example, loved it but was really pissed off about one still on a wall that I got a cutaway of. And she thinks her smile looks horrible in it and she hates that photo, which I had no idea. Obviously, I never would have used it if I'd known. But it's just a tiny little detail, but it's important to her. And we all look at photographs and zone in on ourselves and go, ugh, I look awful in that. Everyone else thinks you look fine. They didn't even notice. And, you know, imagine that multiplied by, you know, a big screen. So, yeah, but it was a very strange experience not to be there watching with them. Um, and I can't wait actually to get back and actually watch it again with them, hopefully for the US premiere or something like that. You know. So the film is showing in Galway this weekend. 
and hopefully some people have listened to this between <laughs> when it's published and the very short window until your film's actually shown, although it'll be available all weekend, I presume for ticket holders with the way festivals now work. And uh, well, listen, thanks a million for talking to me. I really like the film. I thought, as I said, I thought it was really beautiful and uh, just want to wish you all the best of luck with it and this weekend and beyond. Thanks, Ross. Thanks again to Kim for taking part in the podcast. Pure Grit plays in the Galway Film Fla on July 23rd. It's both in person and online this year. I'm sure the film will find its way to festivals all over the world and follow Kim Bartley Docs on Twitter to keep an eye on its progress. Thanks to Stephen Galvin and Phil Marlin for supporting the podcast and to film composer Michael Fleming for kindly allowing me to steal his music. You can find more of it at michaelflemingmusic.com And thanks to you for listening.